0: Hey tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of the Southpaw Slice. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can follow us on Twitter at southpaw underscore slice. Find me at Ben Lewis SN five ninety, and find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. Well, she is mortal after all. Bianca Andreescu had a ten-match win streak finally halted. She fell in the round of sixteen at the Miami Open. As action continues, we have. A budding but not-so-kind rivalry developing between her and Angelique Kerber. Novak Djokovic is now out of the Miami Open, falling to Roberto Bautista Goot. Roger Federer is still in the mix, and we are through one week of the latter half of the Sunshine Double. And tonight, we welcome special guest Blair Henley. She's a freelance jack-of-all-trades in the tennis world, whether it's on-court interviews, creating digital content for tournaments, increasing fan engagement, or helping players kickstart their rap careers. Uh, Blair can be found at the center of it all, and she's kind enough to join us tonight to talk about everything on the ATP and WTA side. Well, Blair, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you don't mind that lengthy introduction, Uh, but it certainly seems like you have uh, an extensive role in the tennis world, to say the least. Can you, I guess, start by telling us a bit about the variety of work uh, you do and maybe take our listeners through sort of a, a walkthrough in your career in tennis?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, first, thank you for that introduction. I am happy to be known as a launcher of rap careers. I'm definitely (laughs) putting that in line on my resume. Um, But in in a nutshell, as far as my my tennis life has gone, my dad's a tennis pro. So I grew up at the tennis courts. I spent a lot of time uh, playing tennis, teaching tennis. I went on to play college tennis at Rice University in Houston, Texas, majored in economics. Uh, thought I might use that degree, uh, clearly have not. I taught tennis for a little bit after college uh, and then did my first kind of me- tennis media job with worldtennismagazine.com, which I'm not sure it's still up and running, but Randy Walker is a name a lot of people in tennis know and let me write for him, gosh, that was probably almost 10 years ago. And then uh, in addition to some other corporate work that I was doing, I got a job working for tennisnow.com. And that ended up being a huge blessing. They allowed me to pretty much write on whatever I wanted to write about. I covered all four slams for them and got my feet wet doing on camera work. They have a pretty significant YouTube following. Um, After Tennis Now, I wrote for the ATP for about six months and then got my first job. And seeing at the U.S. Open in 2015... My boss, Michael Fuhr, was nice enough to give me a shot on court 17, sight unseen, and I am grateful to him to this day. I now do, uh, last year I think I did nine, traveled to nine tournaments and worked uh, Roland Garros from home. So now traveling a lot uh, to work in tennis, which is great.
2: It's funny, Randy Walker is the one that kind of gave me my start as well in uh, tennis media back in 2008, getting me my first press credentials to the uh, City Open in D.C., and uh, I, I remember, I still, no, seriously. And I, I still remember, uh, I don't remember the website I was covering for at the time. I don't know if it's still going either. But I do remember my first press conference with Andy Roddick. And I had one of those moments where I was so nervous going in, I kind of put my foot in my mouth. I, I'm wondering for you, are there any players that still make you kind of nervous when you step up to
1: interview them <laughs> after a match? Um, you know, well, I will tell you, I've, I've interviewed Andy a couple times, and he is definitely one who, who you know he has a history of calling you out if, <laughs> if you happen to ask a question that doesn't have a point or, or if you <laughs> come at it from the wrong angle. Uh, but it's funny, though. I think I, the, my nervous levels have definitely gone down over time, which is a good thing. I mean, I had my first uh, one-on-one interview with Roger last summer, there were definitely some nerves going into that. But I will tell you, there are a couple of, of WTA players in particular who I always make sure I triple-check my facts because they will uh, they will call you out. Uh, Anastasia Sevastova is one who, multiple times, there have been things, I mean, I thought I made pretty innocuous statements, and she had, had some way of saying, you know, well, I don't think it went that way, or that's not what I thought, <laughs> and, and so she's. She is one who is very quick to, to make sure that you are on her page. So um, just kind of
2: off the beaten path there. But yeah, she's one for me. Yeah, as soon as you have a moment like that, you never make those kind of mistakes again. You're so certain to make sure that you're taking care of things. Um, not not everyone working in the media is a former player, as you are. Um, what advantage does that give you in your job? And can you tell us a bit about uh, how far along your playing career got to?
1: <laughs> That, that will be the short part of this answer, but <laughs> okay. the answer the first, the first half, um, Being having played tennis at a relatively high level, it's allowed me first to get to do instruction content, and that's something I never in a million years thought I would do, but I did a decent number of instruction videos for Tennis Now, uh, not thinking anyone was ever going to watch them. And I still have people regularly come up to me at tournaments and say how thankful they are, how much a video has helped them with their forehand or their volley. And that has has allowed me to engage with the the tennis fan base in a way that I never thought I would be able to. Uh, And I also think it's helpful for me in terms of my post-match questions. Uh, The majority of what I do is the on-court hosting. And there are people who can come to, say, Court 17 at the U.S. Open and sit there for five matches. They're there all day long. And as as you guys know, if you've ever seen a post-match interview at a tournament on court, they can sound very similar. And I do my best to make sure there's a variety. So if somebody is on my court all day long, they're hearing three or four different questions, player-specific. And I think that my playing background has kind of helped me come at maybe the same kind of question in a different way that potentially gets a different answer uh, from a player. So I feel like that it's helped me in that way. Um, And in terms of my playing career, I I played at the very lowest level, the the 10 (laughs) Ks of the ITF tour. Um, I certainly loved doing it. I played uh, during my summers in college and one summer afterward. Um, Character building is probably the way that I would describe it, but really great experience. I mean, all of kind of the, <laughs> the the stories that you hear. I mean, sharing hotel rooms with four, five, six other girls. You're sharing a coach. You're sharing. You're pretty much sharing everything. But it was a uh, again just really character building. You're traveling by yourself, so you grow. I think in a lot of ways when you do that, and it, uh, I think you just you grow as a tennis player and and as a person. And unfortunately, and this is a whole another rabbit hole, but the new. ITF World Tour. If if that structure had changed back when I was playing, there's probably no way I would have been able to play those tournaments, which is which is really kind of sad. And I hate to see. I hope that the ITF can figure out a way to kind of normalize what has happened since they made those structural changes, because there are going to be a lot of a lot of players, in particular college players, coming out of college who don't have an ITF junior ranking to help them get into those ITF tournaments that aren't going to be able to play professional tennis now. So I'm thankful I have that opportunity, and I certainly hope the IPS kind of figure out a way to open that door to more people.
0: Yeah, it's certainly, uh, I guess, the the side of the tour and the side of a playing ca- a career in tennis that we don't see uh, as media and fans, uh, the players sort of lugging uh, from... You know, hotel room to hotel room, <laughs> destination to destination, and saying, "Oh, maybe I can earn four hundred bucks this week." It's it's a, a major grind, and uh, obviously, there's there's a great disparity, and, and that's becoming a bit of a, a conflict right now with the tour. Obviously, uh, we've seen a lot of Canadian players rise into the spotlight, and and I know you were there at Indian Wells uh, recently. And uh, to start on the women's side, we we've seen such an incredible emergence of Bianca Andrescu on the Canadian side. She's just from Mississauga, which is not far away from where we are from at all. Um, look, we're not even close to being tired of it talking about her because just week after week, uh, <laughs> she's putting up such incredible results. Uh, what did you notice, I guess, about about her and her game uh, that's impressed you the most, uh, capturing the title at Indian Wells? Uh,
1: I think it's a combination of things. But uh, Ben Rothenberg tweeted, uh, I, I think it was Ben, a couple of days ago that Her arrival on the WTA Tour, what we've seen so far this year, is one of the most complete that he has seen. And that, I think, was the perfect word because she has the game, obviously. She has, and you know, listen, she can be in perfect position and clock a forehand, but she can also be running at full speed out wide and hit a slap shot forehand winner with zero spin down the line. So she has, she can improvise. She, had, she calls it junk. She I think I saw a quote where she said she had some junk in the trunk, which I love. Uh, but on top of that, she appears to have the confidence. She doesn't seem to be overly confident, but she's got a little bit of swag. She handles the press well, which, listen, when you go from, and you guys probably know better, I don't know exactly what she was ranked going into this year, yeah, but when you was, kind uh, of burst into the spot, yeah. Yeah, it you was know? Uh,
0: 152, so.
1: Right. Okay, so when you, when you have that kind of meteoric rise, the, the ability to handle the spotlight is sometimes just as important as your ability to handle the opponent. And she seems to be able to do that really well. But again, it's so fun to watch, so fun to listen to. I loved that after she won Indian Wells, she asked Mary Jo Fernandez before, before her post-match interview, how do my lashes look? Like that <laughs> is just so so perfect and so genuine, and I hope she never changes.
0: Yeah, no, uh, certainly uh, we've we've embraced her per, uh, her personality, uh, a big personality uh, on this side uh, in Canada, and uh, we we loved her attitude when I had a chance to talk with her just just a month ago. That uh, sh- she talked about her variety in her game. That she says she kind of gets bored out there, so she mixes it up, um, which I found <laughs> sort of fascinating. Um, and it was also fascinating to see that we actually had some some drama taking place when uh, Bianca Andreescu was in the round of. Sixteen in Miami uh, and getting a, another win over Angelique Kerber and it's pretty rare to beat Angelique Kerber, a player of her caliber, you know, twice in a week. Uh, Kerber at the net, calling her the biggest drama queen ever, uh, certainly generated headlines. I, I just sort of wanted your opinion, um, having played sort of professionally to, to a degree. Um, have you ever had any sort of clash back in the day where maybe an opponent was rubbing you the wrong way or to have some sort of choice words exchanged. And do you think this was sort of sour grapes from Kerber or maybe something more?
1: Uh, well, specifically on that instance, I think it was really just a case of a player having a bad day. I think we don't give players enough credit for how well they lose on a regular basis. Most players are going to lose every week and have to do that on the international stage on camera and in, in Kerber's case, getting beaten by a teenager twice in one week. I think she was just a little bit irritated in general. And sometimes it's going to come out maybe in a way that I think she regretted. And I think her tweet afterwards saying congratulations to Bianca on a great match. I think that's probably how she wishes she would have approached it. But in that case, I think it was just, angie kerber just kind of having a rough day it stinks to lose and and these players have to do it regularly and props to them for being able to hug and do the cheek kiss to their opponents at the net because personally i am not a great loser still i'm not a great <laughs> loser in life so i have a lot of respect uh for the way that they can do it 99 percent of the time and i think that was just it was just a rough day for angie um in in my playing career i i I grew up playing junior tennis in Florida, which is the wild west uh, of, of junior tennis. Uh, so many academies down there. You have a lot of international players. And I think I definitely, I mean, the line calling, you, you've you heard stories of, of what junior tennis is mm-hmm. like. And I can tell you, it's, it's not an exaggeration. Uh, you know, parents coaching, giving hand signals behind the behind the fence. I mean, just yep. crazy stuff that goes on. Um and uh, I think I definitely told an opponent or two they needed to, to go to the ophthalmologist, <laughs> <laughs> which I, clear, I clearly needed some trash talk uh, help as a teenager. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was definitely, I think I got for sure fired up a number of times in junior tennis, but slightly more level-headed in college tennis. But I, I can tell you one instance, uh, we were playing Long Beach State at Long Beach State And they had only one, they were short one of the roving. I think at minimum you could have, you needed two roving umpires and one didn't show. So my coach decided to go ahead and play the match anyway. So you had one roving umpire for six courts of singles. And the cheating on every court was so terrible that at one point a teammate of mine yelled at the top of her lungs you're such an effing cheater oh. <laughs> I And mean, i mean literally it was it was echoing across the campus and the umpire i mean obviously the umpire heard it didn't didn't even give her a code violation because the poor guy was like i know there's nothing i can do i can't i can't be in six places at once so uh, so yeah it was uh, there there were definitely a few of those instances it gets pretty fiery uh, college tennis does which is why Total side note uh, with Danielle Collins, I I tweeted this the other day, but she, I I think it's jarring to watch her play for a lot of people, but Mm -hmm. that is college tennis and she's a former college player and that is what you see on every court. So I I think it's kind of fun to watch. Uh, I know some people don't feel the same way, but it's really indicative of of what it's like uh, playing college tennis in general.
2: For, for an 18-year-old like Bianca Andriescu, who's just making the transition to being a, a full-time professional player, it, it's got to be tough. I mean, you don't know that many other people on the tour, probably. You're getting comments from one of the, you know, recent greats in the game that's kind of giving you a hard time after a loss. What are some of the biggest things that Bianca's going to have to keep in mind off the court to sort of stay grounded and focused and, and help her to just progress in the early stages of her career development, do you think?
1: I feel like you hear a lot of the players say it. It's all about your team, uh, the people that you have around you and the the smart players. And obviously, she's going to have the resources now that she's going to be able to have, I, I would assume, traveling with her. You know, obviously, there's the coach and the physio and the fitness trainer and hopefully her family as well. And I think that that is the most important thing is to kind of have an insular group of people around you. And listen, I I love, you know, some players love to have friends and hang out with with their buddies on tour. Some people aren't like that. And she seems to be a more social person. You guys might know better. Uh, But I think it's it's just key to have that that really great team around you who has your best interest in mind and who can tell you if you're getting out of line or if you need to tone it down, who can be honest with you.
2: She certainly has a crew of other young Canadians that uh, can sort of rely on one another, both on the women's and the men's side. And if we switch to the ATP tour for a moment, uh, I have to ask you, you had a pretty unique moment on court with another Canadian star after Denis Shapovalov beat Marin Cilic and then launched into a rap at the start of his on-court interview. Tell us about how that came about and uh, how would you assess his performance? Oh, this should
0: be good. <laughs> so this,
1: this, we have to go back uh, one day before, or to make, I guess two days before the actual wrap. He played and beat Stevie Johnson on the court where I was hosting Stadium 3 in Indian Wells. And my final question, that uh, usually the final question of the interview, I try to to make it something fun or something off court or something human interest related. And I said, you know, his coach Rob Steckley was in the stands, who obviously is is at the helm of the videography, and he's doing these weekly vlogs from tournaments. And I said, you know, in addition to the vlogs, which have been so much fun for fans, we've also learned that you're a pretty good rapper. And I am not kidding. I thought he was going to rap right then and there. <laughs> and the crowd went wild. He kind of fake dropped a beat. And I said, <laughs> he turned purple. And I said, listen, I'm not going to make you rap. And I was like, unless you really want to rap. Because I, I really got the feeling that he kind of wanted to. Part of him and wanted to, yeah. I, so i said i'm not gonna make you rap but but how about this how about we make a deal if you happen to end up back on stadium three and you win another match here will you rap for us and you know the crowd is loving this of course and he said yep i'll I'll do it so you are responsible you are
2: responsible for this then blair aren't you
1: um, I mean, listen, all credit to Dennis who actually did it. And that, that was one thing, you know, afterwards. So, you know, fast forward a couple of days later, he's on, he's on my schedule. Uh, he's playing Marin Cilic. He, he played a fantastic match. I mean, it was, it was, he tuned Marin Cilic. Uh, and then in the post-match, I, before, before our interview, He's like, oh, my gosh, I'm not ready for this. I'm feeling so tight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's what he said to me, like, off mic. And I said, you know, listen, a player obviously knows that they could say no to to anything that somebody asks them to do in in that kind of setting. And so he had – he certainly could have told me I'm not in because I would have – you know, we we didn't even have to talk about it in the post-match interview. But he – Clearly was like ready. He knew it was happening. <laughs> um, so we did. We did two regular, two normal questions. And then I finished by saying, you know, I think some people here know what's coming. And I, the crowd went wild. I, I didn't realize that anybody would have remembered or that this would have been on anyone's radar. Maybe there were a lot of Canadians that were there a couple, um, you know, two days before. But people were people knew that this was actually possibly happening. Um, and, you know, he said again, oh, my gosh, I'm so tired. I don't know if I can do it. But he grabbed the mic. <laughs> we had music ready. My, my shout out to my producer who kind of broke protocol to be playing. You know, we, I'm like, imagine me up in the producer booth, like looking uh, looking at YouTube for basic uh, beats, rap beats. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea what I'm looking for. <laughs> you
2: don't travel with your own rap beats is what you're saying.
1: No, no, I had, you know, I'm trying to make sure there's no profanity. So we don't accidentally have, you know, an F-bomb coming out <laughs> the, the court speakers. So we, we start playing the music. He takes the mic. He, he, he has a couple of false starts that didn't go well. Uh, but, you know, I was like, he, he, he wanted a chance to do it. And the crowd was, the crowd is pumped. They, they were encouraging. Uh, and so he was like, let me grab my phone. I, I got to get this done. So he actually wrote a rap. For he he was so prepared for this he wrote a rap for our court for that day, uh, talking about you know coming out and being fired for his next match. Again, the crowd loved it. Uh, the social media reaction was perhaps not as kind, and it never because, is. that I know social media, but but you know from my perspective, I think if we want players to have personality which is what we, we so often complain about is, oh, he's boring or we don't like to watch you know, him or her. They have no personality. Well, when they show us some personality, to me, the reaction should be positive no matter what, because I thought it was, it was awesome of him to kind of, A, show that he has interests outside of tennis and B, to put himself out there because he certainly did not have to
0: yeah and look uh I, I think it's it's fantastic that shep is is kind of revealing a, a goofy side to us he did it in miami as well he had his uh sort of bizarre uh video yeah. called the day days off be like and him uh sort of going <laughs> going out to the pool but it's raining and then he lathers himself up with a bunch of sunscreen and everybody just found it really weird but it was also really funny in a super strange way um so I, i'm glad that we see that Love side it. of him yeah it, it was great and And what I also love and and what's making him so impressive, too, is, uh, as you said, how how tight and nervous he was for, you know, a rap verse. And yet he never seems tight in the moment against uh, facing a a former Grand Slam champion like Marin Cilic, for example. And that's uh, (laughs) what we seem to like about Denis Shapovalov. Uh, I'll just mention um, probably when our listeners are listening to this, maybe the following day, Shapovalov and Stefano Tsitsipas will have played their matchup. Um, But this is kind of an intriguing battle uh, of one handed backhands and, and beyond the personality of both of these players, I I feel like the latest wave of a few of these next gen guys like Shapovalov, like Tsitsipas are, are really delivering a type of game that, that fans are just getting so excited for. Do you feel that there is maybe kind of a newfound energy on the ATP side of the tour about some of these players?
1: Uh, absolutely I, I think I mean that match gosh I wish I wish I was in Miami just for <laughs> well for a number of reasons but yeah. that match would be so much fun to watch yeah so many so many fun personalities obviously I, I'm sure we'll we'll mention Felix uh, at some point but it's it's the tennis plus that that electricity when they step onto the court and it's I love to see fans who might not watch tennis day in and day out or follow it on Twitter, the, when they start saying, Ooh, who is this kid? That's when you know that they're, they're really making waves.
0: Yeah. And that's, uh, I feel like that's what we're trying to do uh, half the time with this, this podcast and on Twitter being like, guys, tennis is super cool. It's not this sort of like country club sport that you think it is. It's, it's a lot of right. fun. Uh, and, uh, Players like Denis Shapovalov uh, certainly bring that to the equation. Um, Of course, still on the men's side, we're we're really seeing three players. You know, maybe the three greatest ever kind of dominate the the Grand Slams. And I know we've asked a, a. some pundits in the past about this, but uh, do you think they've maybe discouraged and thwarted sort of multiple generations of their contemporaries uh, in terms of winning majors? Um, and are you getting a vibe at all that maybe this next gen could be closer to to snagging their chance and, and getting in there with a grand slam title or two?
1: <laughs> Math and logic would say Yes. <laughs> I, but yes, I mean you're you're absolutely right. They have certainly thwarted. I mean, a, a lot of people I think thought that the Nishikori Milos roundage generation was going to be the one to start snagging slams from the big three, the big four. But we're we're now we're now past that, you know. But this year, I, I thought even maybe it's Dominic Team maybe moving into clay season. Maybe it's Dominic Team who, who kind of makes the move and and snags Roland Garros. Who knows? But I definitely think that. The players have talked about it before where when, when one young guy starts to do big things or, or girl, it kind of perpetuates itself and snowballs and everybody starts to have a little bit more belief. I think Stan talked about that uh, certainly in his career. And I think that snowball is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. So, yes, the logic would, would dictate that, that we are going to be seeing that changing, that official changing of the guard soon.
2: Uh, How soon?
1: That's the big question.
2: On the women's side, uh, the game sure has come a long way in recent years, and there's just such in- incredible depth. I mean, week in and week out, seems like there's at least a dozen players who are capable of winning a tournament that you, you wouldn't even be surprised if they did. Uh, how would you assess the-, the overall strength of the women's game? Because I know there's critics out there. I mean, there's always critics who say, oh, you know, there's all these players, you can't get behind one because it's always someone different. But how do, how do you feel overall with-, with the way the women's game's gone lately?
1: I spent a good, time, a good amount of time talking to Courtney Nguyen in Indian Wells. She's the, the WTA insider and kind of the expert on all things WTA. And she just had a big smile on her face when she was describing the fact that people, she feels, and, and I would agree, that people are finally catching on to what she's been saying and a lot of people have been saying for years. And that's that having a tour as deep as the WTA is, does not mean it's lacking stars. You just have to be looking for, you you have more of a choice. It's just, it's just a bigger pot of stars. And I think people are starting to realize that Serena's dominance, for instance, wasn't because the rest of the tour was weak. I think the WTA tour has been deep for a long time. I think it just underscores how unbelievable Serena was and continues to be. And so I, I love kind of seeing people get excited about the, uh, Vondrosheva or Coco Gauff or, or kind of, you know, looking, I don't know, a, a chase away. That's, that's been the story of the Miami open mm-hmm. and just having fans uh, who, who love tennis, but even kind of the fringe fans thinking this, this is fun. And it's not necessarily somebody I've seen play before. And I think that is huge for the WTA.
2: Blair, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to join us this week on the podcast. I think that's definitely more laughs than we've had in, in a long time discussing some of those topics. <laughs> so kudos to you and your, uh, your sense of humor for that. Uh, can't wait for your next Shapovalov interview. You'll have to make sure whatever tournament you're next at with Dennis that you get assigned to his court. And uh, we definitely look forward <laughs> to having you back on the podcast sometime uh, later this year if you'd like.
1: Well, thank you, Ben and Mike. It has been a pleasure, a lot of fun to talk tennis. I don't get to do it much when I'm home, so, so thank you for that. I appreciate it.
0: We appreciate, we appreciate it as well. Have a great night. That was uh, Blair Henley joining us on the Southpaw Slice podcast, and you can find her at, uh, at Blair Henley. You can find us at Southpaw underscore slice. So it's good to know that it was officially her that uh, launched Dennis Shapovalov's rap career. Now I don't know if I should be a little ticked off with her or <laughs> Well I just feel like anyone who's
2: gonna give Dennis a hard time now needs to direct at least some of that Blair's way exactly. since she was the culprit behind it all.
0: Uh, you know, I think it's all good fun and games if you thought the rap was was not the greatest. Um, I still thought it was hilarious. Either way, much like his Miami Open video, his uh, his Miami Open day off. If you haven't seen it, head to uh, Denis Shapovalov's Twitter account, and uh, he posted that mar- March. Nineteenth, uh, I did mention that he has his round of 16 match coming up with Stefano Sitsipas. We'll, we'll move off of Dennis and continue on the men's side uh, because we have to talk about Felix Oje-Aliasim. Um, reaching not only uh, his third quarterfinal of 2019, but it's his first career Masters 1000 quarterfinal. Big time win over Nikolos Basilashvili, uh, 7-6, 6-4. Uh, look, he's kind of the men's version right now of Bianca Andreescu, if you think about it. Uh, starting the season, one. 108th in the world and he's now up to number 41 in the live rankings and it's so remarkable because he's continuing to score these big time wins over top top players it's not like the draws are being really friendly and opening up for them he's just getting it done against against everyone
2: yeah like Bianca Felix is no longer like Canada's little secret that we were all kind of holding on to and and talking about hey one day he's really going to be big he he's big enough right now uh and and only gaining steam uh, he's played eight events this year his numbers aren't as impressive as bianca's but i don't think any player male or female has numbers like hers but he is 17 and 7 at the moment which is quite impressive um like you said he's beaten some great players uh the win over martin fukcevic for me was a huge one because there's yep. a player that's that's played really solidly this year and that's a top level pro he beat uh, Herkatz recently, who had defeated Dennis just a week ago as well, getting a little Canadian revenge for us. And to me, one of the things that's so impressive about Feel well, there's two things that, that really strike me. One is just his overall composure. You know, he really has that ability to not get carried away emotionally in a match, whether it's going well or whether it's not going so well. It's kind of like that hockey cliche of never getting too high or too low, and he embodies that so well. Mm -hmm. And second of all, just the way he managed to transition from a successful early season run on clay to now coming over to hard court and acting as if it's no big deal and he's been playing on it all the way through. So those two things, to me, really point to uh, more positive things ahead for Felix, um, and and he's still alive, obviously, quarterfinals, and what an exciting match coming up against another young uh, ATP star.
0: Yeah, uh, Borna Cioric is the quarterfinal matchup, which uh, is going to be a fascinating one. Cioric, 22 years old, so a few years older, but one of these uh, young sort of rising stars on the ATP side who has a very complete game, just very solid on both sides of the wings, uh, on his forehand and backhand, very solid two-hander, and a player who has big match experience. He has a couple wins over Roger Federer uh, recently in 2018. Uh, I'm curious to see how he handles the moment and curious to see how Felix Ali asim does too. But uh, as you said, very calm, cool, collected. I I like the way he operates on the court in terms of his pacing. He he has a very specific routine as he delves into his serve. He's never going to rush himself. Uh, Just focusing on his game, doing the talking and and kind of relying on that serve to forehand weaponry, uh, which he's been utilizing so well. And uh, the way he beat Basilashvili, uh, as well today. Very impressive. He was down 6-5 in that first set with lashville trying to serve it out. Broke right back, wins the tie break, carries that momentum, was actually trailing briefly in the second set too. Breaks back, takes the lead, and, and takes over. He's now 4-0 and against top 20 players, which, which is just incredible. I think anybody would be happy with that stat, let alone uh, an 18 year old who has started the season 108th in the world.
2: He handles the pressure so well, and it's amazing. He's 18, Bianca's 18, Dennis- Dennis is 19. It's almost like three siblings, you know, where each has their own unique, uh, distinctive personality, both on court and off the court. You've got sort of Dennis on the one side, who's this like happy puppy dog, who's clearly matched with the right coach, by the way, because Rob Steckley is a heck of a character himself. Yes. On the other end, you've got Felix, who definitely is showing a maturity for an 18 year old. That is so, so impressive to me. And then sort of in the middle, you've got Bianca, who does show a lot of emotion, but she's also able to keep that composure and has obviously, the the I would say, the most variety among all three of them in, in her game. Uh, this Canadian trifecta, if you will, are going to keep tennis fans and sporting fans in Canada entertained for a long, long time uh, the way they're setting themselves up this year.
0: Absolutely. Well, one thing we love about tennis, certain matchups, is seeing stylistically... A different types of play on court you don't want to see sort of the same type of player playing one another and uh that we have three completely different versions in terms of style and personality as you mentioned and all uh in their teens just making us feel super old uh, every time they play a match uh one veteran i guess of the men's tour milos raonic um Uh, he fell to Kyle Edmund in straight sets. So disappointing for him. He actually got a walk over into the third round. So it was just his first match of the tournament and uh, had an injury timeout dealing with the back issue early second set after dropping the first set. Six, four really never got himself into the match against a a tough player granted in Edmund. Um, I I was a little surprised. Look, we, you know, we've, Talked ad nauseum in terms of injuries with Milos Ramos. I was just surprised to see something happen uh, one match in when he had been, you know, completely healthy really for most of 2019.
2: No, I agree. And, you know, we should have knocked on wood a little bit more or something heading into the tournament because it was looking so so positive for him in 2019. Yep. That great start at the Australian Open, I mean, despite, despite the fact he didn't get past the quarters, what a slew of top-level players he had to beat just to get there. Uh, and and his health has been, yeah, remarkably solid up to this point. Now, he did mention after the match that the back had been bothering him in the days leading up, mm-hmm. and he was kind of hoping he was going to have a good day, and obviously that, that didn't go that way. Um, I mean, it is troubling because we all know last year how things went for Milos. It just seemed like it was one thing after another, and you hope this isn't going to start sort of you know snowballing into into bigger things I looked at his ranking uh, sorry not his ranking but his record at this stage of 2018 which was eight wins and five losses right now 11 wins and six losses doesn't seem like a whole big difference between the two years but to me up until this point Milos has been giving me a whole lot more of a confident feeling with the way he's been playing and the big time players he's been defeating
0: yeah I I agree I think his serve has looked as good at as it ever has when it was really clicking especially in Australia if you think uh, his ability taking out Vavrinka, Kyrgios, Zverev like big time players uh, in succession I thought that was the best I'd seen him probably since 2016 when he reached world number three and uh, kept feeling like you know if he's moving in this right direction and staying healthy he's heading into the top 10 and he's not far off there I think uh, right now uh, in the live rankings he's, he is going to drop a spot come Monday to 15th in the world which is still very very Solid. I guess my last question with Milos Raonic is now that you're going to get a break, which is great, very, uh, very needed right now, but you're heading into the clay court season. We know Raonic uh, is not going to make his hay on the clay, but um, I'm curious how he manages his schedule and should he play Roland Garros? I think for Milos, it's got to be all about setting himself up
2: for his bread and butter, which is going to be the the grass court season. Yes. Uh, obviously, if he's feeling any um, nagging injuries or hasn't fully recovered from this, he, he's he got to shut it down until he's feeling absolutely 100%. You cannot jeopardize that short but important grass court season when you're a player whose game is built like Milos's is. That being said, you also want to keep in mind having a solid seating as you're heading into Wimbledon mm-hmm. so you can avoid some of the top guys, if possible, a little bit earlier. And so with with very few points to defend on clay, if he's healthy, I think he's got to go for it. I mean, yeah. last year he only played two clay court events in the one he was beaten by Denis Shapovalov in in Denis's surprising run in Madrid. But I think, yeah, if you're healthy, go for it. Pad your stats, boost that ranking a bit, and put yourself in the best position you can for the grass court season.
0: Yeah, I uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. But as you said, it actually could be an opportunity to really boost ranking points, too, if he's feeling okay just to get himself into a couple Masters 1000s and play Roland Garros, having zero results at a slam, obviously, last year. That's free points, and that's something that could push him much closer to the top 10. But uh, health is of the utmost importance for him. Uh, I mentioned off the top Novak Djokovic losing to Roberto Bautista Agut uh, in three sets RBA has gotten him twice this year in 2019. That's incredibly impressive. Um, That's a storyline. Another storyline, though. Novak Djokovic completely dominated down under at Australian Open, uh, capturing his 14th Grand Slam title, third in a row. But back-to-back losses um, with the Sunshine Double and Indian Wells in Miami, uh, which have normally been hunting grounds for him in the past. Does that raise any alarm bells about our world number one? I mean, it doesn't raise any alarm bells for me. And first and foremost, I have to give you credit, which
2: I don't always publicly do. But <laughs> you, you are a big supporter of Roberto uh, Batista Agu. And and twice now this year, he's beaten the world number one. And and how many players at all have beaten Djokovic since his game started clicking last year at Wimbledon? Not that many. And uh, we'd have to go back and, and do a little Greg Charcot stat check. But I, I don't know, you know, the last person to beat him two consecutive times, uh, you know, in recent memory. So kudos to you for, for sticking behind, behind RBA. You did mention this was going to be a tough one. I'm not concerned about Novak. Uh, I mean, his Australian Open was so dominating. He just got better as that event went on. He only dropped two sets the entire time. He destroyed Lucas Pui in the semis. Mm -hmm. He had his way with uh, Rafa Nadal in the finals easily in straight sets as well. And I think at this stage of his career... And you got to keep in mind his life has totally changed in recent years. He's got two kids at home. This is a very different uh, type of home life I can attest to when you have kids. Everything changes even though he's got help. And his wife is obviously phenomenal with with how she uh, helps uh, as well on the road, taking care of the kids, all that sort of stuff. But I think your priorities change. And for him at this stage, I mean, he's not getting any younger it's all about the majors and, and what has he done in majors for the last three? Nothing but win. Yep. So as long as he's still, um, you know, kicking butt at those uh, grand slams, I don't look at the, uh, you know, occasional oh, quarterfinal or a little bit earlier or against a player like RBA that doesn't really concern me too much. And, and now he gets to regroup, head off to the clay. And I'm very excited to see, as many people are, how he's going to transition at, at Roland Garros this year.
0: Yeah, I think this is uh, as excited as we've been for a clay court season in probably a few years for the men's tour. Uh, Rafael Nadal has completely dominated it the past couple of seasons, but now uh, we have question marks in terms of the way Novak crushed Nadal in the finals of Australia, who is our... French open favorite. I know that's. I'm saying this way too soon. Uh, (laughs) We just can't wait. We just can't wait. I know. And uh, Roger Federer returning to clay is super exciting. Dominic team. He won his first masters 1000 on a hard court. You think you could transition that to even better clay court success. So it's going to be very intriguing to see Uh, Roger Federer is still in our tournament. Um, This is getting a little interesting, though. He's going to have Daniel Medvedev ahead uh, for his next match. He beat him twice last year. One of them was pretty close. We could potentially see a Sunshine Double completely snatched away from the big three. Of course, Rafa withdrew. Novak is already out. Uh, What are the chances here that maybe we see a brand new Masters 1000 winner?
2: Yeah, I mean, look—it's uh, we're we're on the way to that being a distinctive possibility. Federer's beaten Medvedev, you know, both previous meetings, although they had a real close one in Shanghai, as you talked to me off air earlier in three sets. Yeah, uh, and, and the young guys are are realizing, hey. Uh, you know, Djokovic, Federer—they're not uh, unbreakable. They're—they're they're not the the superhuman. You know, especially out of a out of a slam. I, I mean to say, yeah, there is the possibility to take these guys down. So, um, yeah, wouldn't surprise me at all. And when you look at you know the um, the top half of the draw, R.B.A. Isner, Felix, Chorich—I mean, it's Up for grabs. Right? Great opportunity for all these guys. Isner's the defending champ, of course. I think he's probably the one I would say is actually maybe the least likely to to keep going. He hasn't had the most uh, solid of seasons. That's true. Again, perhaps, you know, he became a father back in the fall, too, so maybe he's still getting <laughs> used to that, too. Maybe. This is going to be my defense for all the dads on tour yeah. uh, and moms. But... Uh, yeah it's exciting it's it's fun and and we're waiting for this uh, on some level to happen at the slams too which inevitably it, if it 's going to happen at this level it 's going to transition to the the best of five one day also but um and, and I like that sort of distinctive. The slams are still being, you know, big three dominated, but we are seeing some, some new faces now at the masters
0: 1000 level. Yeah, it's a great mix to have. And uh, one veteran I should mention too, because we haven't seen him in a while, but returning uh, this week, Kevin Anderson is back in the fray and he's already punched his ticket to the quarterfinals. We'll spend uh, about five minutes on the WTA before wrapping up here. Petra Kvitova, of course, she was the Australian open finalist this year. uh, And to me seems to be hitting her stride uh, with a couple big wins. Uh, Particularly beating Caroline Garcia so handily six three six three. To me, she's a contender right now. Simona Halep. I know maybe earlier in the season we weren't sure quite to make uh, what to make of her in terms of you know parting ways with her coach. We didn't really know what direction she would head after saying goodbye to Darren Cahill. But she has been consistently going deep event after event and. I feel like she's maybe on the brink of winning something.
2: Yeah, she's had a solid season for sure, but she hasn't had that sort of big moment that we've been waiting for. Uh, Again, I think, you know, for her, after winning her first slam last year now, you know, the, the, the majors also carry more importance. But um, we'll see. And in the top uh, part there, we've got two Czech players that are going to play each other, the the veteran in Pliskova against the young up-and-coming Vondruzova, who's really fun to watch. And um, and, and just side note, I know I'm kind of diverging here, but the um, Canada-Czech Republic Fed Cup match that's coming up in April, good news for Canada that Petra Kvitova and Karolina Pliskova both decided they're not going to be playing in that tie. So I, I know I'm sort of... Diverging, but uh, good news for the Canadian Fed Cup team. Still going to be very tough because they've got a lot of depth at doubles and they've got Von Drusova, who's maybe our, our Bianca Andreescu equivalent. Yeah. Um, but it is nice when you see those top two players that, that won't be playing. But they're alive still as we speak in, in Miami. And, uh, you know, as much as we are talking about the Canadian results this year, there's still some nations out there like the Czech Republic that just have such enormous, enormous depth.
0: Yeah, uh, an extreme wealth of talent. Uh, you would still feel like... They are probably going to be the slight favorite, despite not having Pliskova and Kvitova there. Uh, I should note uh, Bianca Andreescu uh, losing to Annette Contivate in this tournament and having to retire due to the shoulder injury. She's uh, doing the very smart move. She's pulled out of Charleston and is taking time off, and her next event is going to be Fed Cup. So yeah,
2: she has to. She has to pull out of any. Yes. You know She needs a break. She yes. has the most wins, male or female, Uh, An incredible amount of matches played. Doesn't matter that she's 18. I mean, you just see what she's been through physically, emotionally. Uh, Gosh, she's got to, you know, she deserves it. If anyone deserves the break, it's Bianca, uh, you know, for all those reasons. And it's very important. It's very crucial that she paces herself. Yep. You know, I, I'm sure there's a part of her that's, that's eager to get healthy and feeling good again that wants to get right back out there as any 18 year old would want to do. But you got to look long term and you got to protect yourself to hopefully have a very long uh, career, whether she attains great heights, whether she ends up getting Grand Slam titles or challenging Grand Slam finals or not. At the very least, you want to set yourself up to be healthy, to be able to um, capitalize as much as you can in this short window in the grand scheme of life that uh,
0: that that professional athletes have yeah you want to preserve your career for as long as possible and treat your body as best as you can we can see over the past 10 15 years obviously that dynamic has changed on the tour which is great physiotherapy you know trainers everything diet all of this that that's come to fruition has helped so many athletes extend their career um which which makes that more possible gabriella dabrowski we should mention we haven't really talked about her that much this season but quietly into the quarterfinals with uh her regular women's doubles partner, Zhu Yifan, they're playing well and uh, just, I guess... Bring it back to Fed Cup. She's going to be a very, very important piece to Canada's team uh, come April.
2: Absolutely, clutch for Canada, and she's been sort of the quiet yet yet anchor for the the women's game in Canada for the last few years. And you know we should probably give her more attention. Uh, and it's the curse of being a doubles uh, specialist, if you will. <laughs> Look at Daniel Nestor. He he achieved how many Grand Slams, greatness, Olympic gold medals in his career, and really never in the limelight also not the personality to command the limelight and I feel like Gabby's very humble and very laid back as well um, and she has become that, that doubles player for Canada male or female uh, it's, it's all her and, and she's yeah as you mentioned quietly been building this year she made the semifinals in Indian Wells last week Now into the quarters here in Miami and uh, look between you and me, our next Canadian tennis player that we get on the podcast. If I have my vote, I want to speak to Gabby Dabrowski.
0: Yeah, that would be fantastic. And it will be very interesting this quarterfinal because it's actually a rematch of what happened in Indian Wells uh, to outstanding singles players as well uh, pairing up together arena Sabalenka and Elise Mertens that's a very tough pair to get through uh, singles or doubles uh, if you're dealing with either of those players so that will be an interesting quarterfinal to see and uh, it will be interesting to see how she can fare on the clay court surface as well 2017 mixed doubles French Open champions so uh, that's another surface that she's comfortable on and uh, she'll likely play, uh, play there Play for Fed Cup as well. Uh, you've been listening to the Southpaw Slice. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us at Southpaw underscore Slice. Find me at Ben Lewis SN five ninety. Find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. And a big thank you to uh, Blair Henley this week for joining us on the program. It's always great to get some some fun collegiate stories uh, mixed in. I, f- I feel like we've lacked those actually.
2: Yeah, that was that was a good one. I think I wasn't expecting that. We never talked to Blair before, but we've seen her work obviously and. Mm-hmm. Just so much variety, but a great sense of humor and uh, definitely going to have
0: her back on the podcast. Definitely. You can follow her on Twitter as well, at Blair Henley. We will talk to you next time.